welcome home. We live in a world, there's a lot of fear, huh? Phobias of every kind. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Why don't you go to Exodus chapter 2. We're still in our series called Holy Moses. Looking at the life of Moses. And we are now down to verses 11 and 12, which I read last week, and I will read this week, and I will also read next week. That's three sermons worth. Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2 of the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Old Testament. Hear the word of God. It says, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Let's pray. Lord, as always, I come before you in complete weakness, and I, I just pray that you would give me a clear mind and even an eloquent tongue. But more than that, as always, I pray that by your Spirit you would reach into your Word and bring out things that are far beyond my capacity to communicate, and that you would communicate them by your powerful Word to all of our hearts and plant things there that would bear fruit even years from now, long after we've forgotten where we heard it. And I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. A lot of fear in the world and a lot of phobias. Anybody know what a phobia is? What, Virginia? Very afraid of, but specifically it's an irrational fear. It's a fear that doesn't, that you probably shouldn't have. A phobia is, is that. Uh, agoraphobia, for instance, is a fear of cats. I don't understand that one. Uh, acrophobia is a fear of heights. I do understand that one. In fact, I don't think that's irrational at all. <laughs> no, I said acrophobia. Yeah, no, arachnophobia, you're right, but that's, that's, I defend to the death that I said acrophobia. Um, and then there's my favorite. Anybody ever heard of it? Anatidophobia. Ever heard of anatidophobia? Let me show it to you. Anatidophobia, the fear that somewhere, somehow, a duck is watching you. That's, that's quite a phobia, isn't it? Yeah, I had a, if you ever have a doctor that tells you that, though it's, it's probably fake because it's, it, it's been traced that that phobia has never actually happened. It's traceable to Gary Larson's Farside Comet. Do you remember that? Yeah, so if you ever have a doctor who, who diagnoses you as having anatidophobia, he's probably a quack. And he's probably going to attack you with his bill. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. So the reason these sorts of things are funny, though, is because we all, we might not recognize a fear of ducks, but we do recognize fear. We do recognize a fear of being watched. All of us have at times been uncomfortable being watched. Sheriff, if I, if I stood right here and for the next hour just stared at you, would that make you uncomfortable? Yeah, probably. And if you did the same to me, if I did that to any of you, it would make you uncomfortable. We don't want to be watched all the time, do we? Let me ask you something. Are you the same person when everybody's watching you as you are when they're not? You are? You, you are, you are without guile and a much better person than I am, Sherry, because I have to admit I'm not always the same person when people are watching as I am when people are not watching. For instance, I will admit to you, my family is, is good. We love each other, but we've had times when we would be coming into church and we were not getting along. 
I know that we're, we're the only family that's ever had that happen. We were, we, were, we were having maybe an argument, but as soon as we got here, we hid the body in the trunk, and we came into the church all smiles. Anybody else ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> you, you can if you want to, but you don't have to. Um, because we have, we know from living in this world that there are things you want to keep away from the public eye. And frankly, the rest of us want you to keep it away from the public eye. There are things for public consumption and there are things for private consumption. Being private is not necessarily sinful. Um, but I say that because it is true that even as a Christian, sometimes how I act in front of people is not how I act when they're not watching. I'm spending a lot of time alone these days. My family's out of town. And no, I'm not going to tell you I'm out running around. I'm not. But I will tell you, I had a little angry experience here a few days ago. Um, a few weeks ago, I got hit by a deer. Notice I didn't say I hit a deer. A deer hit me. If you see my gold car out there on the driver's side, it's all kind of beat up. The poor deer took it worse than the car did. My daughter was with me, and, and now on that road between like Glenburn and, uh, Glenburn and Levant, I'm always very careful in the morning because there are a lot of deers going back and forth. The other morning, I was coming back from a night shift on my secular job, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and there was somebody in a little blue car that was driving really close to the back of mine. Now, if you know me, you know that is an area where I'm not all that sanctified. The Lord needs to work on my heart. I don't like it when people crowd me in a car. But especially this time, not only was I in a place that was not a good place to be, for having somebody crowd me. If I came on a deer and had to slam on my brakes, this person would have been right in my back seat. They were so close, I couldn't see their headlights. I don't think there were two feet between the front of that woman's car and the back of mine, and I was going 40 miles an hour. So I just started slowly slowing down, not to be a jerk, although I'm capable of that, just in hopes she would go around me. But she wouldn't go around me. She stayed right on top of me. And finally, I reached a point where there was a parking lot, and I pulled over to this parking lot around this side, and I stuck my arm out the window and said, Go around! Go around! And this woman came up slowly beside me, and as she did, I realized she had tears all down her cheek. And I don't think it was because I was shouting at her, because it looked like tears that had been rolling down for a while. And it, it dawned on me, the reason she was probably driving poorly is that something happened in her life, and she was so upset she was just not thinking clearly. And there's a man in a car shouting at her, go around, go around. And I'll, I'll show you how it's worse. I have a little bumper sticker on the back of my car. It has this church's logo in it. Come to New Life. <laughs> she was trying to read it. <laughs> and the thing was, is when I realized that I'd done that, for just a brief, unwise moment, I thought I should follow her and apologize. Can you imagine the guy shouts at her and she turns the corner and the guy starts following her? No, it was a good idea not to do that. Now, here's the thing. It caused me to write a poem. You know me. I like to write little poems, right? Here's my poem. Sometimes who I is is more a snag than who I ain't. Free from prying eyes, I'm more a soprano than a saint. Did you get that? Somebody know who the sopranos are? You good godly people never watched a gangster movie in your lives, have you? Let me, let me say that again. Sometimes who I is is more a snag than who I ain't. Free from prying eyes, I'm more soprano than a saint. Ever been there? 
Yeah, people don't always see us, after all. But you know who does see us? Yeah. Go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and don't worry, this is not a sermon where I'm just going to bring conviction and send you home feeling badly. I try not to preach those. Psalm 139, we're just going to read the first seven verses. I will tell you, as I've told you before, this is my favorite psalm. I guess since it's all the word of God, we shouldn't have favorites, but the reality is, is there are different passages of scripture that affect us more than others. And I love Psalm 139. Verse 1, are you there? A Psalm of David, verse 1. Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with half of my ways. 75% of my ways. 87.3% of my ways, you are intimately acquainted. You are acquainted, Lord, with 99.3% of my ways. 99.7. 99.8. I want to hear some more alls here. All my ways. What does that mean? All. Every one of them. Anything that's running through your mind, anything you're struggling with or not struggling with, God knows about it. When I first got saved, I used to practice my prayers before I'd take them to God. I thought that was great. I'd make them just right and impress him every time I brought it to him. But guess what? It dawned on me one day, he hears me practicing the prayers. And he knows the state of my heart before I decide to practice the prayers. There's no sense in trying to impress him. There's no sense in trying to hide what I'm thinking and hide what I'm doing. He already knows. Now, there's great peace in that. Sometimes there's a little fear in that, too. Luke 12, 2 and 3 says this, it says, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. I grew up in a household full of cats, and to this day I love cats. But once when I was a little boy, I mistreated a kitten. I had my buddy Chris Espinosa and I, we grabbed one of the kittens named Timothy from our house and we decided to play catch with him. We were tossing him back and forth and he was scratching our arms and mewing and the more we tossed, being two little boys, the harder we tossed and eventually we killed the cat. Now, that's an object of shame of mine, but we did it away from my house. I remember though that there was a house two doors down from us where there was a little old lady living inside and I need to tell you, I don't know where you grew up. I know when I told this story once in Lemaine, a small town, nobody understood how that woman wouldn't know me. But in the city, at least in Denver, you could literally live right next door to somebody for 20 years and never, ever know their name. You might see them every day. If you're not Katie, my wife, you could not know them. Um, and I didn't know this lady. She didn't know me. But she saw my buddy Chris and I tossing his cat back and forth, and she kept banging on the window saying, Stop that. And we did it anyway. Well, when I discovered that something was wrong with the cat, I put him back in his box in the house and I, I walked away, hoping my crime was not seen. And it was discovered in our family that, that the cat had had something done to them. And my mother actually ran into a little old lady down the street who said she saw two little boys tossing the cat around. And she described my friend Chris Espinosa, and we all knew immediately it was Chris. My whole family was talking about, oh, that Chris Espinosa. I don't know who he was with, but 
He's such a nasty little boy. My family's into drawing. I remember my brother and sister had drawn a gallows, and they drew Chris on the gallows and then this other noose for the other person. And they, they, since I was better at drawing than them, they wanted me to draw the other person. Talk about a telltale heart. <laughs> and then one day it finally all ended. I was actually kind of relieved. I, I heard my mother talking to somebody at the front door, and I happened to turn around the corner, and it was that lady. I recognized her, and she recognized me in her eyes. And, went, <laughs> and she said, there he is! That's the other boy! My sin had found me out. This is what Jesus is talking it, it is amazing. This is what Jesus is take, talking about. He says, there is nothing, nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. How could Moses think that no one would know he had murdered the Egyptian? We're going to talk more about how interesting it was he felt the need to kill him in a later sermon. But the thing about it is, is that I have made the case recently that Moses' faith did not begin in Midian at a burning bush. There's plenty of evidence in the scriptures in Hebrews 11 and in Acts chapter 7 that he knew about the God of Israel long before he met him in a burning bush in Midian. That he knew about his Jewish ancestry and that he even knew he had a calling on his life. So there is a knowledge of God in Moses. We don't know how deep it is, even when he kills this man and hides him in the sand. Hebrews wasn't yet written, but it would have been instructive. It said, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, if I stopped there in that sermon, that would be a depressing sermon, wouldn't it? It would be like, every thought I have, God sees. Oh boy, am I in trouble. Because even as a Christian, raise your hand if your thoughts are maybe maybe not always sanctified. <laughs> um, and yet he does see them. He sees them all, right? So if we just end there, we've got a problem. But what was the law given to do? To show us our sin in order to guide us to what? To, the, to grace, to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and Incidentally, if you ever want a verse that refutes the idea of reincarnation, it's verse 27. Not that we have to do that too often in the church. But verse 27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Notice that. How many times do we die? Once. Once, and then comes judgment. 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, in other words, all who would believe, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for Him. Are you eagerly waiting for Him? Are you longing for the day when Christ comes and we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is? This is wonderful news. 
especially when it says he's going to come not in without reference to sin. Why wouldn't he deal with us with sin? It's already been dealt with. It was dealt with at the cross. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account and our sins are laid by an eternal God who is in all times, at all times, on the shoulders of Jesus outside of Jerusalem. Not just some of them, but all of them. I'm not even going to go into the 99%. All of them, past, present, and future, taken away, gone. We don't get judged for them. Now, our works will be judged for worthlessness and, and, and benevolence, and we will look at that in a moment, but our sin is taken care of. Give me a hallelujah. When Jesus comes, he's not going to come and say, well, I loved you, but you were in sin. Well, we all had sin. We all still have sin. Hopefully the Holy Spirit is working mightily in our lives and conforming us to Christ and changing us from who we once were, changing us from who we are now into who we will be. Amen? But His seeing all is not cause for living in deadly fear if, in fact, you have already placed your faith in Christ. However, He does examine our works. And we are hoping for a reward on the final day. We get the reward of salvation, but there are apparently, the Scriptures say, rewards beyond that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's backwards from Hebrews. If you're in 2 Corinthians, you haven't gone far enough. If you're in Romans, you've gone too far. If you're in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you need to put it down and pick up the Bible. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, rebuking them for taking too much interest in the preachers that they had and not enough interest in ultimately the one about whom they were preaching. And in verse 10, is everybody there? Verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. In other words, the teacher that you have. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. When you first build a building, what do you build first? Foundation, because if you don't build that house on a foundation, first time a strong wind comes up, what happens to the house? Just like one of those bouncy houses, it's gone. Verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in Christ, Jesus became the foundation of the building that is being built. You even see this in the world today. If you see houses torn down, what do they usually do with the foundation? They bury it. They don't reach down and start taking apart that concrete and pulling it up. Not usually, unless something's going on, they bear it. It's too much. That foundation is deep in the ground. This is true here, too. That foundation is not going to be moved. The question is, what do we build on top of the foundation? And this is what Paul is talking about in using that analogy. Verse 12. Now, if any man, and I would add woman, builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Did you see something happen in that verse? What happened? It went downhill fast. The value of the items went downhill fast. Now, he's not talking literally about gold. He's not talking literally about silver. He's talking about the worth of our works. Some of our works might be better than others. Jesus had said, um, he said, don't do your good works before men in order to be noticed by them. Because if you do, that's your reward. You've gotten it. In other words, he's not going to punish you. If you, and I've done this, my, my ministry is public. Right? So I preach. And sometimes I preach right from the heart. 
But I remember when I was going for ordination, oftentimes I was preaching for people I needed to impress, and that was the center of what I was doing. Did I get punished for that? No. Will I get the same reward for it? I don't think so. When they patted me on the head, you know what? That was my eternal reward. <laughs> that was it. That's all he's saying here. He's not saying if it's not gold, you're going to perish. Watch what it was. Let me go on and show you. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. This is not about purgatory. There is no purgatory. The fire is not reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ's people. This is an analogy. God is going to burn those works with righteousness to see what they are worth. If you burn gold, it melts, it's still gold. It doesn't lose any of its value. Same thing with most of these things, but if you burn wood, hay, and straw, what's, what happens to them? Poof, they disappear. They are no more. They are ashes ready to be blown away by the wind. Now watch what he says in verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. This is not a reward of salvation. This is a reward in addition to salvation. And I don't know how to tell you what that is. Because the scriptures are not that clear. It's ambiguous, but it's wonderful. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Why? Because when he comes, he comes without regard to sin. This is not sin. This is a worthless work. This is maybe a work done in order to impress people. And maybe we did impress them. We got our reward right then. It's, it's stubble. It's going up in flames. You see what I'm saying? So there is a positive side to the fact that God sees everything we do and that even works that we do while nobody's watching, He sees them. Matthew 6, verses 3 and 4, Jesus said, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's hyperbole, folks. You can't like cover the ears of your right hand so your left hand doesn't know what. He's, he's just saying be quiet about it. So that your giving will, giving will be in what? And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now this doesn't mean that everything we do for the Lord must be done in secret. I'm up here preaching because God has called me to preach. I can't do this in secret. If I do, I'm not doing it. Does that make sense? <laughs> Some of them you can't do in secret. But there are a great many things we can do in secret for God's praise rather than people's praise. Things we do in prayer, things we do silent for somewhere where nobody in the church sees it. God sees it. And if it pleases him, it will be brought up later. And that's a good thing. All right, we're going to look at one last passage, which I think shows us both of these instances where God sees all. He sees the negative and he sees the positive. Go to Luke chapter 10. Are you following me? Well, stop it or I'll have you arrested. Don't take that seriously. I would like you to follow me. I noticed I said that and some of you were just sitting there like, okay, well, I'm not going to look it up then. I don't want to be arrested. Verse 25. Are you there? Let me give you a little context. Verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, meaning put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, you, may, you need to remember that in a Jewish context, the lawyer, this is not Joel Bornstein. Okay? This, a lawyer means that he's a theologian, in essence. This is a guy who knows the law. 
So he asked the question, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the man answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, meaning Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Of course, without the spirit of God, without the blood of Jesus, none of us can do that. It's too perfect. We can love the Lord without loving him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. I love the Lord and I cannot claim that I love him with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul. If I did, I wouldn't have been shouting at that lady when I was. You see what I'm saying? If I loved my neighbor as myself, that wouldn't have been a problem. In fact, if you look at these verses, if you were to go through the Ten Commandments, if we were doing these two things, loving God with everything within us and loving our neighbor as ourselves, there would be no need for the commandments. We would fulfill them. But we cannot outside of the Spirit of God. They didn't understand that when Jesus was talking to him, though. Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he is, after all, a lawyer. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Everybody. Verse 30. Jesus, and that's just context. Here's the story. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, if I started telling you a story and I started with the words, once upon a time, what would you think about the story I was about to tell you? It's fictional. So usually you start once upon a time, you're, you're telling them, right, you're commuting. What if I said three days ago at 8.30 on Harlow Street downtown, I begin that story that, that way, what are you thinking then? This is truth, or at least I'm presenting it as truth because I'm being really specific. Notice at the beginning of this, this parable, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He didn't say from one town to the other. And fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. That's a lot of detail for just a pretend story. And I don't know this from the passage. The passage does not say it. I can't point to a passage that says it. As long as I've been a believer, I believe that Jesus was standing there telling a story that had actually happened. He used it as a parable. And I am open to the possibility that some of the people in the story were standing right there with him. Let's go on to verse, what, 31? No, 30. Yeah, they, let me read it again. 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, in religious fairness, I have to point out that the man apparently looked dead. And for a priest, a Levitical priest, to touch a dead body made him unclean, and he could not perform his duties. And I'm sure that's what he was telling himself. If I do this, I cannot perform my godly duties, so I'm not going to go near that dead body. What he was telling him. You ever had that kind of dilemma? Religiously, I'm supposed to do this, but it seems like the right thing is something else. I'll give you an example I had to do uh, back in the winter. It's not that dramatic. Um, when I first inter entered ministry, it was stressed to me that you never meet alone with a woman unless she's your wife. And I have tried to follow that because it's a good idea. Not only because men and women sometimes misunderstand each other, let's say more than sometimes, frequently misunderstand each other, but also because people watching can misunderstand from afar. And we're supposed to avoid even the appearance of evil. 
Well, I was, uh, last winter, I was driving up, well, let me put it this way. I, you know that hill down here in Brewer, the one that's like this, just before the red light? Isn't that wonderful? I don't even like it in the summer, but in wintertime, I will not get on that. Because if you get stopped at a red light on that thing, just try and start your engine and get going again. You're coming down that hill, whether you like it or not. So I don't even get on it. In the winter, I'm coming up that road. I turn up by that church. I go up over here on uh, on Wilson. I turn and come back on Chamberlain and turn in here. That's what I do. So I don't have to do that hill. Call me a coward. That's what I do in the wintertime. Um, as I was coming up, I saw a woman I know. I know her because my second job, we used to work together. And she works over at the restaurant here now. She doesn't work over there now. She knows me. I know her. We don't know each other well. We know each other by name. She knows I passed her over here. And if she hadn't known it, she would see the bumper sticker on the back of my car that says, New Life Church. It was snowing to beat the band. And I walked up. I was driving up on her. And she's doing this. She's not that big anyway. Doing, trying to get through the snow to get to work. I knew that's where she was going. And the first thing that ran through my mind is, ah, uh-uh. don't be alone with any woman. Don't pick up a woman where people could see you driving her around. Now, from a religious perspective, that makes sense, right? What would you have done? That's what I did, too. How am I going to pass her up and leave her in the snow if for no other reason than I'm trying to be a witness to her and she sees me go right past her in the snow and sees our church label on the back of the car? I picked her up and I drove her here. I broke the rules. But God help me if I hadn't broken the rules. You see what I'm saying? This was an instance where the priest was religiously right, but personally wrong. He should have checked that man to see if he was alive. He should have done something. And all he did was cross over to the other side of the road. Verse 32, likewise a Levite also. Same exact story. This is Jewish parallelism. They'll basically tell you the same thing twice. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan. A what? Who's his, is his audience Irish here? Is Jesus talking to the Irish here? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. And what wonderful people did the Jews hate almost as much as they hated the Romans? The Samaritans. Samaritans were viewed as half-breeds. They were viewed as heretics. They hated the Samaritans. If they had to go between Judea and Galilee, where Samaria was in between them, they would literally go all the way around it. On a big scale, I would say it's like if you had to go to Massachusetts and you hated New Hampshire, you'd go all the way into Vermont and down into Massachusetts. That's what they used to do to avoid Samaria. And the hero of Jesus' story being told to Jews is the last person on earth that these guys want to hear is the hero of the story. Verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt what? Does it say he felt religious compulsion? What's compassion? Love, mercy, yeah, understanding, empathy. He looked at him and said, oh, you poor soul. Verse 34, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. That's what they did in those days. There was healing to that. And put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, remember. I'm thinking this is a true story. I'm wondering if the Samaritan was standing there. Having done this, he had no idea that he was seen. But who always sees everything? God always sees. He doesn't just see the bad. He sees the good. 
36. Is that where I am? Yeah, 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Which one? Was it the priest? Answer out loud, please. Was it the priest? <laughs> Was it the Levite? Was it the Samaritan? And all of them were acting as though they didn't know God was watching. And he was watching every single one of them. Verse 37. And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. I'll finish with a story about Teddy Roosevelt. You've heard of him. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was president from 1901 to 1908. And I don't remember what the position was. But at one point, he had an office to fill in his administration. And he knew a man who he'd known for decades and was on good terms with, who was recommended as the man to fill that post. He was infinitely qualified, imminently qualified. The man had all the qualifications. He was intelligent. He was the perfect man for the job, and Roosevelt refused to give it to him, even though they were on friendly terms. He never told him why. After the man had died, a friend asked him why. Theodore, you never called him Teddy. Theodore, why didn't you appoint so-and-so to that position? He said, years ago, decades ago, I was on a trolley car in New York. And I got on the trolley, or rather he got on the trolley and sat down with his newspaper in one of the front seats. And a little old woman got off after him. And he pretended he didn't see her. And I watched that and gave the, somebody else gave the chair to the woman. But I remembered him. And I remembered that if he would do that when he thought no one was watching, what would he do with that much more power? He stayed friends with him. That man probably never knew he lost an administration post based on something he didn't even know was known. Something that he probably thought was pretty small. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm saying that even with Moses, and we'll study more on this, Moses is a man of God who is calling from God. He already has at least the rudimentary roots to a faith in the God of Israel. And yet he murdered a man and hit him in the dirt as though he thought God couldn't see. But your sin will find you out. And it's going to find it out on Moses. The Hebrews didn't figure this out. God just made sure it was found out. Because this was not God's plan for him. Hallelujah, God sees all things. He has grace on us where he sees what he ought not. And he has rewards for us, the things that he wishes to see. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I praise you for your word. I praise you for your grace upon me in all the areas where I fail, both privately and publicly. And I praise you for the, the wondrous rewards that you will give all of us on the day when all is revealed and we see the mighty works that you have brought about in our lives by your grace and your mercy and your power. And I pray it in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said. Find us online at newlifechurch.today.